morning again. Would you please uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll be reading from verse 33 all the way to verse uh, 46. Matthew chapter 21, 33 through 46. Uh, If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took the slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the uh, vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those riches uh, to a wretched end uh, and will rent out the vineyard to another vine grower who will pay him the proceeds of the proper season, at the proper season, and said to them, Did you ever read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever whoever it falls, it will be scatter him like dust. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that your spirit would work in us to do a work that we cannot do on our own, which is to make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. Father, I pray that we would understand your word the intent uh, that you communicated. Father, so that we can put it into practice. Let it not just be a mental exercise, but uh, something that uh, will change our will and will be more like Christ and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. If we're real honest with ourselves, uh, interpreting Scripture can be a little bit difficult. Uh, As you read through Scripture, Sometimes there are certain things that just become very difficult to understand. Uh, One of the things that makes interpreting Scripture difficult is this aspect of time, as in the time when it's referring to in the text and now, uh, when we're reading it. That that time difference causes a a problem sometimes for us to understand correctly the Scriptures. Uh, Because in that uh, time period that has changed, there has been some cultural differences. So the time and cultural differences makes it sometimes hard to interpret. Uh, You remember from the book of Ruth that there's this uh, incident where 
Boaz comes to the uh, city gates and he calls some of the elders and they come and they sit around him and he then waits for this guy who could have redeemed Ruth and the properties and he sees him and he calls him and he tells him to come here and they all sit down and they're talking and he, he proposes this opportunity for this guy who could redeem the properties of Ruth and uh, says, here's these properties and so forth and the guy's just, I mean, he's salivating over these properties and the opportunity he's going to have to make money and then, of course, Boaz tells him, well, the day you redeem him, you're going to have to marry Ruth and uh, he backs out of it and to show that he doesn't want the properties anymore and gives him the opportunity to redeem the properties, uh, he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. That's a little confusing. Why did he take his sandal off? Why didn't he just email him one of those DocuSign things and let him, you know, sign it like that and be done with it? Uh, I mean, why, why do that? I mean, why did he go to the gate? Why didn't he just text him, hey, do you want the property? No, I don't want the property. Okay, we're done. There's a cultural difference here, and the cultural difference sometimes makes it hard to understand. But, but not only the, the cultural differences, there are some passages that are just kind of hard to understand. Uh, for example, when God decides to flood the earth, and uh, there's just a family in an ark with some animals, and there's everybody else is dead, right? Uh, you never see it in the... Uh, in the nursery paintings, but there's always the, the dead bodies floating around, right? I mean, everybody's dead, and, and that's sometimes hard to understand. Like, is this the same loving God that loved us and sent his son? So maybe we should interpret this as something different. Maybe it's not a worldwide flood. Maybe it's just like a little flood right here, and maybe God had other arcs to save other people. And we tried to somehow justify or soften God a little bit that maybe it's not as harsh as we think. Or, or, or take, for example, Song of Solomon. Uh, what, what do you do with Song of Solomon? Hard passages. Her neck is, is like a tower. What do you do with that? Her teeth are like, like you know, uh, deer, pair and pair running through. What are you going to do with that? How, how do you interpret that? What, and how, how do you apply that? You write it on a card and give it, you know, next uh, Valentine's. Uh, tell me how that turns out. I'd, I'd love to know that. There, there are things that are just kind of difficult to understand of the scriptures. And then there's this aspect of imagery. Uh, how there is uh, a lot of imagery we see in the scriptures. For example, Revelation chapter 5. There's this uh, presented, there is this lamb. And, and the lamb appears to be slain, but the lamb is standing. Well, uh, slain lambs don't stand, do they? I mean, they're just kind of thrown there. But here's a lamb that's standing. And not only is it standing, but it's got seven eyes and seven horns. And uh, it somehow can receive a book, and it can open seals. I've never seen a lamb get a book, much less open seals. Uh, but here's this lamb. So the imagery makes it hard. And not only imagery, but... Uh, the parables, let's just be honest, parables are sometimes hard to understand. And there have been some who have had such a high view of God that uh, when certain parables have been presented, they say, it can't possibly just be oil. There, there must be a deeper spiritual meaning to this oil, and so they go off on to some tangent. I, I remember this uh, sermon of this guy, he was preaching from uh, the the Good Samaritan, 
and he had a meaning for everything in the text. Everything had a meaning. The guy going down and being assaulted was uh, everybody in the world. Uh, uh, the person, you know, the Good Samaritan is Christ, and um, the oil that was put on him was the Holy Spirit that was applied, and then the money that he gave to the innkeeper is how God provides for the pastors, and, and I mean, everything had an image in, in this parable this guy was preaching. And I, I was so tempted to ask, because he never said what the donkey was. He never did say what the donkey was. What was the deep spiritual meaning of the donkey? He never said it. But uh, sometimes when we look at parables, let's just be honest that sometimes it's hard. How do we understand a parable? Uh, Roy Zuck, he gives a definition of a parable. A parable is a story that seeks to illustrate a truth by analogy. It seeks to uh, illustrate a truth by analogy. And so it has two parts to it. The one is a true-to-life incident. Uh, a woman that, that loses a coin in her home, and she starts to dig around to find it, cleans out the whole house to, to search it. That's a real-life situation. Or, or plants growing, and then weeds also growing in there. It's a real life. You can understand it. But there's also another part, which is a spiritual truth that it seeks to illustrate or to illuminate so that they can understand it. It, it, it has both parts to it, something that's real life, another part that's spiritual. Now, in parables, there is uh, one spiritual truth that's being communicated. It usually, usually, there's one spiritual truth that's being communicated. Why, why did I say usually instead of all the time? Well, there are some cases where um, the, the parable has a little bit extra. Uh, for example, in the prodigal son, you remember that the son uh, goes away, comes back, and in coming back, uh, they have this whole party and so forth, and, and you say, wow, God is... Uh, a gracious God. But then there's the older brother. And remember what's the older brother doing? He's in there celebrating too, right? So happy that his younger brother came back. He's outside pouting. He's upset. So here's this one parable, and it has both aspects. It's dealing with a person who repents, but also a gracious God that even invites the firstborn to come in uh, and not be pouting outside. Uh, the good soil. The good soil is really the focus is on this good soil that receives the good seed and produces a lot of fruit. But then also in the story, you kind of understand about different types of soil and how they don't produce fruit. And so the main focus is, is one spiritual truth that's being taught. Here we've got a parable. And in the context, this is the second of three parables. Jesus just went through one parable where he is kind of uh, discussing these, these two sons. Uh, one, the father goes up to the son and tells him, go work in the vineyard. And, and the son says, I will not go work in the vineyard. But then some time elapses and he repents and he goes and works. But then there's the second son, and the second son, he, uh, the father goes up to him and tells him, I want you to go work. And he says, yes, Lord, I'll go. But then he gets distracted going and doing something else. So God gives him this parable. Now this is the second parable that he's going to be uh, addressing and he's addressing if you remember he's there at the temple it's the passion week he's there teaching individuals who have come and the leadership of Israel comes up to him and is asking him on what authority are you teaching on what authority are you um, healing people they want to know and it's in response to that question where does he get his authority that he's giving this uh, these parables now, what we're going to be looking at today is that disciples must live for God by producing actions and attitudes that imitate God. 
That, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, disciple. So I, I, and that should be everyone. It's like, no, 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 I, I just wanted to get saved. No, there's no, I just wanted to get saved. Those who get saved are disciples. They're supposed to follow after Christ. And what the disciples are supposed to be living for is to live for God. That's their purpose. When they wake up, when they do their work, it's for God. Everything is focused on God. And it's to be producing actions that imitate God. And, and that's pretty good, right? We can understand actions that imitate God. Uh, we, we get pretty good at it. You know, we, we learn to do certain actions, you know, at the right time. And people say, oh, that guy's a Christian. I'm like, yes. Uh, but not only actions, but attitudes as well. See, uh, you can have actions that imitate God, but then you can have an attitude that, that doesn't. Uh, we could imagine just for a moment, not saying that anyone did this, just making a hypothetical thing, uh, that uh, there was a group of people decorating for VBS yesterday. And as they're decorating for VBS, they're there, they're present. Oh, look how good they are. But it could have been possible that someone in their heart was saying, I hate this. I really wish I wasn't here. I don't know. I'm wasting my time doing that. And go on and on and on. Hey, how you doing, Brooke? Hey, Ken, how you doing? In other words, they have actions that look like they're imitating God, but their attitude is far from imitating God. And what we're going to be looking at is disciples must live for God. That's the point, is to live for God. Not to live for fruit, it's to live for God by producing actions and attitudes that imitate God. And the way we're going to do this is by first understanding our place. Understanding our place. That we have to first understand where we're at. And, and to do that, we're going to look at verse 33. Uh, Jesus starts uh, with another parable. And in this parable, there's this landowner. Now, this landowner has to be very, very rich. I mean, incredibly rich. Because he, he buys land, he puts a wall around it, he uh, has a wine press, has a tower, he has everything ready for it to be uh, a vineyard. It, he has to be incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And, and as, as we think about this vineyard, just like the fig tree that was mentioned before, when uh, the mention of a fig tree, well, there are you know fig trees and so forth, but it, it, there's a spiritual aspect that it goes even beyond just the fig tree in that it represents the provision and the blessing of Israel. When start speaking about a vineyard, when Jesus starts talking about this, it, their minds are not just going to be thinking, oh, a vineyard. They're going to be thinking even more, something more spiritual, uh, probably some of them probably started thinking of Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, which is the song of the vineyard, where there was this uh, one who came and dug out this whole land, got it ready, planted the vineyard. But unfortunately, the fruit of that vineyard was very bitter, was very bad fruit. Now, the meaning of Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is not parallel to here, but just to point out that the fact that when a, a vineyard is mentioned, it could be associated with Israel. Now, here is, here is this person, he must be incredibly wealthy to be able to purchase this, and he does this, and he gets everything ready for his own purpose. See, the landowner has a desired outcome, and that desired outcome is wine. So therefore, he gets everything ready to produce what he wants, the outcome that he's looking for. 
he, he doesn't get it ready for wine and, and produce melons, right? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. He has an end goal that he wants to see. And based on his end goal, he gets the land ready for that purpose so that it can produce fruit for what he wants. And he wants this wine, and so he rents it out. Now, when we look at this fact that it's being rented out, we can play around with a couple different interpretations to understand this. In one sense, we can interpret this as maybe those who are rented out is all of Israel. And what is going to proceed is going to be a judgment against all of Israel. And that, that's possible. That would be probably the, the popular interpretation if you want to go with uh, kind of the pop culture of, of interpreting this text you would go, this is just a judgment against everybody. But I, I think there's something in the fact that he is answering the question to the leaders in Israel. And it's to the leaders of Israel that he's giving these parables and he's addressing them. So I would, I would prefer it to be a little bit more specific to judging the leadership of Israel in that they had a responsibility to care for Israel, but instead they didn't. They took advantage uh, here, he rents it out. Now we see in verse 34, when the harvest time approached, uh, from what I understand, it takes five years to be able to harvest uh, grapes to have uh, wine. Five years. Uh, so this is incredible. This is an incredible grace and mercy on this landowner. He has not only purchased the land, He's not only built a wall around it, he's not only gotten everything ready, but he has also paid the salary of these people for four years for them to be working and working and working. I mean, this is just an incredible grace on his part to be doing this in their life. He, it's ready, fifth year, it's ready to be harvested. And as it says in verse 34, the harvest time of Brook, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive. Uh, what is his part? He's supposed to receive the fruits, and he uh, sends some slaves to go get it. Now, what happens? Verse 35, the vine growers took the slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Can you imagine the audacity of that? The land's not even yours. The plants aren't yours. The, vi the wine press is not yours. The wall's not yours. The owner sends his slaves to go get what's his, and you're going to beat them? You're going to stone them? You're going to kill them? Oh, the pride that must be going through their life that, that they're processing. How they must be focused on themselves. How, how they must be just all in love with themselves to have this type of audacity against the landowner. Verse 36 we see, uh, again, he sent another group of slaves. Now, uh, don't, don't run past that. What, what would you do if you sent some people to go get the harvest and they killed them? What, what would you do? You wouldn't send another group. You would send like a, a nuclear bomb and blow them all up, right? <laughs> and then start afresh. But you, you don't go and send some more people. The fact that he's doing this just shows an incredible amount of grace, giving them another opportunity to produce the fruit that he's looking for. Well, I mean, 
what would they do with such grace? You, uh, you would just you would fall down and just be so thankful, right? No, they do the same thing to them. And then in verse thirty-seven it says, "But afterwards he sent his son to them." Now in parables, usually you have an aspect that is um, everything's going according to the norm. You kind of expect it culturally. You kind of think that okay, this is you're anticipating this this to happen. At this point, the fact that he's sending his son is that one point that it just kind of does the twist that you're not really expecting. He did what? Who would send their son in this, in this scenario? Who would do that? Who would give them another opportunity? No one would do that. But he sends his son. And his thought is, they will respect my son. Verse 38, the vine growers saw the son and said among themselves, this is the heir. Come and let us seize his inheritance. Let, let us kill him and seize him in his inheritance. At this point, they're not, very, they're not making very much sense. Uh, what system in the world does it work where you kill the son and you somehow become the inheritor of what the father has? There's no culture in the world where that <laughs> applies. That doesn't happen anywhere. But it's interesting enough that they are so focused on their self, on what they want, that they cease to start thinking logically. They're thinking only of desire, of what they want. And it's pretty impressive to see how people who um, are focused on themselves, who worship themselves or adore themselves and are always contemplating themselves, how they do some things and you're kind of watching their life and you say, how in the world did you get into that? I mean, it's a mess. A terrible mess, and you say, what happened? Because sin has a way of making you think illogically. And that's what they're doing. So what do they do? Verse 39, they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Wow. Can you imagine the audacity? It's not your land. None of it's yours. You're there by the good grace of the landowner. In fact, you've survived because he has paid you for the last four years. And now you're going to kill his son? Verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Just think about it a little bit. What, what would you do? You have this scenario where you're, uh, you sent some of your workers to go and get your what's yours. They kill them. You send some more. They kill them. You send your son, and they kill your son, and then they throw him out as if he's trash. What, what would you do? Throw a party for them? Uh, they answer the question very well. They said uh, to him, we will bring those wretches to a wretched end. To an end. They'll destroy them and then rent out the vineyard to another vine growers and pay them the proceeds at the proper season. What should be done? And that's to destroy, to bring them to an end, to, to cause their destruction. Now, as we look at this, we see on one part uh, a ton of grace. The, the parable kind of reflects God, and, and God is being extremely gracious, giving opportunity after opportunity sending messenger after messenger after messenger for them to repent and be able to give the fruits that he's desiring. 
but they're not doing that. Their focus is on themselves. When you start to focus on yourself or when you focus on anything and you just are keeping on contemplating that, that over and over and over again, in a way, what you're doing is you're worshiping that thing. And they are worshiping themselves. They have the audacity to think themselves owner of what they're not owner of. And what that leads to is that they end up stealing from the landowner. Not only do they steal, but they act very brutish. I mean, they're, how hateful are they to the people who come? And not only are they acting very brutish, but it causes them to think illogically. That's what happens when you start to worship yourself. When your eyes are gazed inwardly and you're just looking at yourself. They value themselves, and because they value themselves, they start becoming more and more brutish and thinking illogically. Now, this isn't the first time that God has addressed the leaders of Israel. Ezekiel 34 speaks to the shepherds of Israel. And the shepherds of Israel had the responsibility of caring for the flock. But instead of caring for the flock, they found the nice fat ones and they killed it and eat it, ate them. They found some that were sick and they kind of ran them off and didn't take care of them. And God says he's going to finally send his shepherd to care for his sheep. So this isn't the first time that leadership has failed. And he's had to address them. Now you might be thinking, well, this sermon has nothing to do with me because I'm not a leader in Israel. In fact, I've never been to Israel before. Before you decide to close your Bible and just say, this has nothing to do with me, I would say that God probably, God has put you in a family, has he not? God has given you a job. And God has put you in a church here. In putting you in a church, he's equipped you with gifts, spiritual gifts. Those gifts to be used, not for yourself, but for God's glory. And he is going to ask, he's going to come at a certain time and demand that you give fruits for those. See, if you're focused on yourself, you'll use your gifts, you'll use your family, you'll use your job only to promote yourself. And that's it. It's very nasty to work with somebody who just promotes themselves. It's all about them. It's terrible to live in a family where it's all about one person in the family. And it's terrible to be in a church where the person doesn't seek to minister, but they seek the attention. Now, instead of worshiping self, they should have been worshiping God, the, the landowner. They should have done what was supposed to do. They should have obeyed and given the, the fruit, but they didn't. Our responsibility, if we understand where our place is, our place is to obey, obey God. So in contrast to going after idols and worshiping an idol, we worship God. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says that God's will is that we become the image of Christ, that we become transformed to the image of Christ. And, and we do that through worshiping God, understanding where our place is and understanding who God is. And God demands obedience from us. And as we obey, we become more and more like Christ. And that shows worship of God. It shows the priority that we have on God. Now, not only are we supposed to be uh, understanding our place, but we're also supposed to understand Christ's place. We're supposed to understand, uh, be understanding by understanding Christ's place. Uh, verse 42 says, Jesus said to them, 
Did you ever, uh, did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, the, uh, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord and is a marvelous in our eyes. Uh, here is Jesus and he's applying Psalm 118. Psalm 118 focuses on God's love for Israel. A, a love that he has, a covenantal, loyal love that he has for Israel. And, and in verse 22, where this is being quoted, even though Israel is, is very small, God is going to exalt. God is going to exalt. The idea that God is going to exalt Israel in this, uh, in this uh, psalm is, is really interesting because it would be kind of like uh, thinking of Haiti. Uh, Haiti is, uh, is beyond economic repair. It's worse than a third world country. In fact, they say that if you invest all the money of the world into Haiti, it still wouldn't be able to bring it out of its situation. It's just in a terrible, terrible situation. In fact, uh, some people have suggested that it'd be better to take the population of Haiti and disperse them throughout the whole world because then they'd have a better chance of having education, life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And imagine somebody saying, Haiti is going to be a superpower ruling all the nations. Well, anybody that's studied Haiti would be like, no, that's not going to happen. Psalm 118 is talking about God's love for Israel. And the situation is that they're being trampled every which way. Egypt marches up through them. Babylon comes down over them. They have no say in anything. And God says, I love you, and I'm going to make you the head, the chief cornerstone. Jesus decides to apply that verse to himself. And he's saying that the reason Israel will be exalted is because of the king, Jesus. He is the one who will make this happen. Now, as we look at this uh, psalm where he's saying, uh, the stone which the builders rejected, and right now Israel was rejecting Christ, and it says that it's going to become the chief cornerstone. The ones who they are rejecting will be exalted, exalted on high. And, uh, and it not only will it be exalted on high, but verse 34, uh, 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. Uh, the word there for people is a nation. And uh, it, here he's alluding to the fact that this aspect is going to be moved out from Israel's focus to the world and uh, the inclusion of the church and then get to Matthew 28 where he has to go out into the world and make disciples. That, that's what is being intimated here. Here the religious leaders have rejected and that rejection has now moved them to the sidelines and somebody else is going to take their place. And I'm not talking about a replacement theology because God will eventually bless Israel again. That will happen. There are promises that God has made to Israel, and he will fulfill them. If he doesn't fulfill them, he'll be a liar. And who wants to put their faith in a liar? Nobody. So he will replace, uh, uh, he will fulfill his promises, but these individuals are not going to be part of it. They're moved aside. Uh, and it says, uh, and he who falls on this stone, verse 44, will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. It's making here a, a reference, a reference to Jan, Daniel chapter 2. 
If you remember Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this huge statue that's got a head of gold, a chest of silver, uh, thighs of bronze, and then the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and uh, clay. And as this statue is there standing, there's this one stone that's not cut by hand that comes and hits the statue in its feet, and it destroys the whole thing, comes all tumbling down. And this one stone that no one has cut by hand ends up growing and growing and growing and becoming a kingdom that's established forever and can never, ever, ever be displaced. That's what it's mentioning here. This, this stone, it's, it's, being, it's going to come and it's going to establish this kingdom. But they're not going to be a part of it because they have not rendered to God what they were supposed to do. This uh, understanding Christ's place, Christ is the sovereign one, the king, who, who has created everything, who establishes everything, who sustains everything. Where is Christ's place in your life? Well, um, some might say, well, he, he, he's the one I, I give a little prayer to before I go to sleep. And that's nice. That's, that's, that's very nice. But Christ is much more than just the person you give a little prayer to before you go to sleep. He should be the one who is sovereign in your life. He's the one who should be dictating everything in your life so that the actions that you do reflect his character. Now, not only should we be understanding Christ's place, but this is the last part. It's by repenting of our misunderstandings. Repenting of our misunderstandings. It says in verse uh, 45, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. Isn't that interesting? It's like a light bulb came on. You think he's talking about, I think he's talking about us. You think he's talking, I, I think he is talking about us. They realize he's talking about them. Now what, what are they going to do at this point? You would think that the logical thing for them to do at this point is to get down on their knees and beg for forgiveness, and beg for mercy and grace, and start producing fruits uh, according to uh, what God has purposed for them. But, but that's not what they do. Verse 46 says, when they, saw, uh, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they consider him to be a prophet. They have a hardness in their heart because they worship themselves rather than God. They, they know that he's talking about them, but rather than repenting, they want to try to seize him. But the fear of men keeps them from seizing him. What do you do when your idol of your heart gets threatened? What do they do? They sought to protect it. I'm not going to repent. He's the one. We need to seize him. Many times when you go to try to expose a person's idol, the idol of their heart, they try to protect it more and more. They try to give you good biblical reasons why they're worshiping their idol. And the way that they are is because God made them. They go into all this weird theology stuff. That's what they're doing. They're protecting the idol. See, because they're not about worshiping God. They're about worshiping themselves. And the more they worship themselves, the more brutish they become, the more illogical they become. The same is for us. You have a person that just worships themselves more and more, they become angry. More and more, they become illogical in how they live. 
we saw that disciples must live for God by producing actions and attitudes that imitate God. That's the question. Are, are you producing actions and attitudes that imitate God? Oh, we can see you sitting here and you look all very nice and, and lovely, all dressed up, and we can say, praise the Lord, we have a room full of disciples. But what we can't see is your attitude. The motivation of your heart, what's impulsing you to be here, to be involved in this church. And the only way to actually be a disciple is to live for God by understanding your place, which is below God, exalting God with your life, understanding Christ's place. He reigns. And then repenting. Maybe you have been focused on yourself. Maybe your life, your decisions have been all about you because you're about promoting yourself. That needs to be repented, turned away from, and must be living for God. For others, maybe you haven't been thinking this way because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You, you have no spiritual life. You have no relationship with God because there has never been a time when you have recognized that you are a sinner and there's nothing you can do to get you a step closer to God. But God in His grace, He, he has sent His Son to die for you and, and to purchase salvation, to redeem you out of the slave market of sin. And if you will put your faith in Christ's work on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, you can have eternal life. And you can be a disciple who lives for God by producing actions and attitudes that imitate Him. Would you please bow in prayer with me? Father, I pray now as we examine our hearts, Father, there might be some here who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. Maybe they have a good vocabulary, maybe they know how to dress, maybe they know what time to show up to church, but Father, they are lost. And I pray the Spirit would convict them, that they would understand their need for a Savior, and that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here who we... We don't understand where our place is, that we're supposed to be producing fruit. We don't understand where Christ's place is. We think we're supposed to be ruling and we're not submitting. Father, I pray that today we can repent of that. In Jesus' name I pray.